Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard, I'm Freddie Sayers. Today we have with us in the studio Michael Tracy, a famous journalist, substacker, provocateur. I disavow the notion I've ever provoked anyone. Okay. Online or off. You have been even more controversial than usual on the topic of Ukraine. Your social media feed, where most people are being kind of very much condemning of Russia, focusing on the evil of the Putin invasion. Your focus, it's fair to say, almost exclusively is on the missteps of the West, the cynicism of the um, response, the scepticism towards Zelensky and the Ukrainian information that we're getting. Give us a summary. Why is that your emphasis? Why are you so focused in that direction? Well, actually, what I did the moment the invasion was launched by Russia was do what I'm constantly beckoned and beseeched to do, which is condemn Russia. Because I actually do think that the invasion is a condemn-worthy act, just like virtually any act of offensive, preemptive warfare, um, whoever commits it, including Russia. So the very first remark that I made once the invasion commenced was a condemnation. And part of that was that I actually genuinely believed in, in the need to condemn it, from a moral standpoint, but also because I wanted to be able to reference that from the outset, I was clear, unabashed in my willingness to condemn the invasion itself. But that would not insulate me from charges, henceforth, of being somehow enthralled to Putin or engaging in apologetics or otherwise, you know, defending the Kremlin line, which I haven't done. What I have done, in general, is note this incredible coalescence of consensus around what is essentially a U.S.-led military intervention in Ukraine that escalates by the day. And no, I'm not saying that there are boots on the ground as yet inside Ukraine, uh, meaning American soldiers, but the nature of the military commitment in vis-a-vis the Ukraine conflict on the part of the U.S. and NATO continues to intensify, and hardly anyone raises a skeptical note about any of this, whether it's the potential to broaden into some wider war, whether the kind of furor around the Ukraine conflict is leading to the ability, for example, social media companies to ramp up their censorship censorship of various platforms, whether it's enriching the military-industrial complex in the U.S. and Europe, which it is. I mean, just yesterday, the Pentagon convened a classified meeting of the eight largest arms manufacturers in the U.S. to discuss plans for what Reuters described as a protracted conflict with Russia. And so for this, just everyone to just sleepwalk into this posture of cheering on a limitless military intervention on the part of the U.S., aimed toward regime change, which Joe Biden himself explicitly declared his intention to 
facilitate. And then retracted. Well, Let's get into that. kind of, not so, really. So there's, there's a lot of stuff there that I would like to kind of probe yep. a little bit. Um, I, I'm going to play the part today of the uh, establishment view, the NATO shill, as no doubt the commenters will call it. Let's start with the beginning of what you said, which is that you made one statement kind of disavowing the Russian invasion, and then since then the emphasis has been in the other direction. Isn't there a question of kind of proportion here? By putting 99% of your emphasis on the wickedness of the West, you give the impression that you think the greater moral outrage is whatever the West is doing as opposed to invading a sovereign nation, which is what Russia did. Clarify for us now, who do you think is the greater moral villain in this piece? Well, number one, I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm not a citizen of Russia. If I were a citizen of Russia, I presume my outlook would be different and my journalistic disposition would differ. But having lived in the U.S. my entire life, which has the world's most powerful military and which has been the leading hegemonic authority the world over for decades, I don't know. I think it's reasonable to orient one's focus in the direction of what the U.S. government is doing. And in terms of proportionality, I don't know. Do you perceive a lack of condemnation of Russia in much of the media coverage nowadays? I feel like that's pretty well served in terms of the constituency who demands that sort of rhetoric. You feel you're kind of correcting a bias well, elsewhere, and that's why you put your focus in that direction. Is that what you'd say? I, I, I don't know that I would consciously, on a daily basis, think of it in exactly those terms, but yeah. Um, I think, you know, one good thing for a journalist to do is to note when there is, are these tides of unanimity that sweep over everything and to see if it's possible to sort of puncture different holes in that, um, especially if it's the, the tide is all going toward a potentially cataclysmic uh, military. So for the record, since I asked you that, if you were to kind of evaluate both sides and say who you think was the bigger moral villain, who, who has done worse, what would your answer be? I think this dichotomized thinking, black and white, moral drama type thinking, where it's all good versus evil. I, I, think, I, think, I think it distorts anyone's ability to really delve into the issues at hand, which is why I, I kind of challenge the premise of the question. That said, in terms of the war that was launched by Russia on February 24th, that's condemnation worthy on Russia's part. I don't think that thereby absolves NATO or the US or the UK of all moral culpability in giving rise to the situation in various ways. But it doesn't actually answer the question, which is not to say... Restate the question. I'm not right. asking yeah. you to say someone is 100% good or 100% evil and I, or, or bad or missteps or whichever phrase you prefer. But you have to make a judgment in terms of looking at this situation, you know, where does the majority of the culpability lie? And what is your answer to that? Do you think... Culpability for what? The war itself? The situation we find ourselves in, including the invasion of Ukraine, taken all in sum, do you agree with those people who think it is majority a Western creation and the West is to blame? Or do you see it as... Vladimir Putin and Russia, majority to blame. What's your answer? I think the so-called West is inseparable from the origins of the conflict. So it almost doesn't make sense to say it's one or the other. Um, you know, I, I'm almost reminded I was sort of an adolescent at the time, but I have enough of a recollection of the Iraq War to recall that a similar sort of binary moralistic point was often put to critics of that war, where you're saying, what, are you saying you support Saddam Hussein, I'm not saying you're accusing me of supporting Putin or anything along those lines, but it was a similarly kind of reductive gotcha type exercise where, you know, if you were against the preemptive war-making policy of the United States, it somehow was perceived to box you in to be mounting a defense of Saddam. And I just don't think you have to approach the issue in anything like as oversimplified a manner as that. I mean, Putin, who, again, I will 
obligatorily condemned for having launched the invasion on, March, on February 24th. At the same time, if you look at his rationale for why he did it, it's very hem- heavily emphasized that his view, and the view of the Russian establishment that surrounds him, at least in the government, is that NATO expansion provoked the war. He calls the United States in particular the, quote, empire of lies, given their breaching of various agreements that have been brokered with Russia over the years, given their their role in um, at least aiding or supporting the change of government slash coup slash putsch that took place in Ukraine in 2014. So, you know, given that, that context and backdrop, I just don't know what use it does to offer these firm judgments of like, so who bears 51% of the responsibility versus 49, except to kind of preempt and forestall the necessary I mean, kind of dis- I we, discussion we of the issues. That. Your critics, right. that is, that's the, the, what animates them, basically. They, I suspect they will see this egregious invasion of a country. They see bodies piling up and death and destruction and tra- genuine tragedy coming out of this decision, which you yourself did not believe would happen, and most people apparently didn't. And then they see you... I was skeptical of prognostications coming from U.S. intelligence agencies that the invasion would happen because they were not providing evidence when queried to substantiate their prognostications. And I think that's a healthy instinct epistemically when you're being presented with all these anonymous officials being quoted everywhere in the media making a very weighty claim about future events. Now, I didn't deny that it would happen. I, in fact, often would qualify what I was saying just on a narrow point, that of course it's possible that Russia will launch the invasion. That is really interesting, because you were intuitively sceptical of the U.S. intelligence. Right. And the U.S. intelligence... As one should be, journalistically, I would say. But the U.S. intelligence turned out, on this occasion, to be right, spectacularly accurate. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, the to the extent that it was foretold that Russia would launch the invasion uh, in January slash February, that was accurate. Um, I would note, however, that just last week, I don't know if you saw it, this reporter named Ken Delanian, who now works for NBC News, previously worked for Associated Press, Los Angeles Times, and actually in 2014 uh, got caught having sent the CIA drafts of his articles when he was at the LA Times for pre-approval to basically butter them up and cultivate them as a source. Um, he did a segment on MSNBC News where he was basically heralding this tactic, this sort of newfound tactic undertaken by the Biden administration to just throw out tons of so-called intelligence conclusions, even if, you know, basically throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks, even if the underpinnings of those conclusions are not reliable. Um, and... So it was revealed a couple of weeks after this report was first surfaced where the U.S. government was warning that China might be involved in furnishing military supplies to Russia. And there was there was a warning issued that China mustn't do this or there'd be some repercussion, so on and so forth. That was a pretty startling development because if true, it meant that the kind of scope of the war had widened. Maybe China was an active belligerent alongside Russia and Ukraine startling potential implications of that. So the U.S. intelligence makes that allegation. They then use their favored media outlets as a conduit to promulgate that allegation. And what happens a couple weeks later? Well, Ken Delanian basically reports, based on his, you know, well-placed sources within the intelligence apparatus, that they just made a bogus claim, essentially, because it was part of this campaign of information warfare. It's interesting. In the past, it might have been seen as a little bit dicey for U.S. government officials to candidly admit that they're waging something called information warfare and using the media as a proxy for it. But now they're open about it. So, you know, this is not some kind of fringe accusation that I'm leveling. You can read about it in the New York Times. You can look at Ken Delanian talking about it on on NBC News. so, 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 so the, 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 in the lead up to the invasion, that warfare, ca- information war campaign was likewise underway. So that they happened to get something right 
incidentally, in the midst of that war, kind of information a big, warfare, kind of a big detail. It is, but it doesn't it doesn't uh, negate the need to skeptically view what is openly admitted to be information warfare uh, waged by the U.S. government because on this particular occasion they quote unquote got something right. And also look at the diplomacy that or the so-called diplomacy that preceded the initiation of the war, right? Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State in the U.S., was asked directly, is it conceivable that the U.S. would uh, acquiesce to this one particular demand of Russia that was formally submitted to them in a letter in December of last year, whereby the U.S. would agree that NATO would not accept Ukraine as a member. So they would change their so-called open-door policy of NATO, where anybody can theoretically join, and just state, for the record, that NATO would not accept Ukraine as a member. Um, And Blinken said, no, under no circumstances is that concession within the realm of possibility. And why is that? Well, they never really gave a firm explanation for why they were so unwilling to make that exchange. So, like, if, if in theory, the war could have been stopped or prevented if the U.S. gave that concession. Do you, do you believe that to be true? Would the war have been stopped? Well, it, it was one of the few avenues of diplomatic negotiation that were available, and the U.S. government, as a matter of principle, closed it off. So, you know, in terms of the lead-up to the war, I don't think anybody should just credulously think that, you know, the U.S. was so innocently trying to stop this horrible invasion and, you know, doing everything in its power to, you know, convince Putin not to press forward with it. Biden didn't even engage in any direct negotiations with Putin. Macron did and was pilloried for somehow being a dupe. Um, even to... It was reported a couple of weeks ago that Blinken, again, the Secretary of State, hadn't even attempted to establish contact with his counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, for approximately a month into the invasion. And maybe that's still the case now. This was a couple of weeks ago that the Washington Post reported it. Now, again, we're having the preparations by the, the, the weapons manufacturers and by others with a vested interest in prolonging the conflict that this war is going to continue Indefinitely, and essentially the U.S. policy is to wage perpetual proxy warfare. So, excuse me if I don't necessarily believe, you know, without real, you know, skeptical thought that the, the U.S. was just sort of benignly hoping to forestall this, so this conflict. We're getting into what you think should happen, which is exactly what I want to focus on. People like you and me and many others who are intuitively skeptical and want to probe information, all the way back to the Iraq war and before, there's been this sense that intelligence coming out of the US is dubious, can't necessarily be trusted. And that was the natural perspective to have for a lot of people when there were these claims that Vladimir Putin was going to invade Ukraine. And a lot of people just thought this is another so-called intelligence claim. We haven't seen the proof of it. And they were just pumping it out and people didn't believe it. And then it turned out to be a exactly right. And I'm wondering, what have we learned from that? What what should we change about our attitudes from well, that discovery? In absorbing whatever lessons are available now from this episode, I'm not sure what the alternative is. Is it now that we're just like, we just dial up our credulity toward U.S. intelligence assertions a bit? Or like, what, so what's, what's, what's the lesson that you take? Or what, what, sh- what lesson should I one I guess take? one lesson could be that, at least in this scenario, they seem to have very good intelligence. Probably there are senior By leaks way, in the military. Sorry to interrupt, but they didn't predict Russia. that Putin would, and the, and the, the Duma would recognize those breakaway republics as the precursor to the invasion. So, I mean, when you say it was just perfectly accurate in terms of how they predicted it would have fallen. I mean, they not predicted, quite true. they predicted a kind of full scale invasion. The, the chronology was, the, the, yeah. the rough chronology that they... But clearly, they, like, they clearly have someone leaking or multiple sources within the Russian military that seems to be kind of chaotic, and I'm sure they have good information. So uh, epistemically, I will now take sort of declarations from the pulpit by the National Security Advisor or whoever, even if they're not especially backed up by proof, pretty seriously. More seriously than I would two months ago. I take your point, and I think that you know, if they do have a mole or something, good for them, I guess. Uh, it's just, 
for journalistically, it seems to me as valid as ever, especially to to maintain a posture of basically presumed skepticism about claims that are not offered with any accompanying evidence. I mean, it's kind of basic. So let's get into what should have happened a little bit more. And I know you don't, you're not a politician, you're not here presenting an alternative program. I'm not asking you to do that. But I think if, if we're leveling these kind of critiques, there should be a sense of what an alternative path might have been. So you've already said one thing, which is that there could have been more diplomatic engagement on the NATO question earlier, earlier this year, obviously in earlier years, and that and there was none. we could have reassured the Russians more about Ukraine, because realistically, Ukraine probably wasn't going to join NATO anyway. So is that that's one well, like that's firm a, thing that you think they should have done differently? Well, I mean, I resist these exhortations that I'm not saying you're making, but often what I'll be exhorted to do is present my alternative as from a policy perspective as to what like the State Department ought to have done or what anybody ought to be doing. And if I wanted to be in that position, I would have, I don't know, been a careerist and interned at the State Department and tried to rise through the ranks where I could be writing policy briefs. And that's not what I really chose to do. So I'm not really that enthused about advising the military-industrial complex on the most prudent strategy. Um, however, it is clearly the case that the Biden administration was so wedded to this principle of an open-door policy of NATO, that they weren't even willing to acquiesce to the most basic Russian demand to avert war, potentially, and just put it in writing that the thing that they said was not going to happen anyway formally wouldn't happen. I mean, in, in, a, in concert with them denying their willingness to accede to this Russian demand, they would also say, look, of course, Ukraine is not going to enter NATO anytime soon. Um, so why, why were they so unwilling to codify what they were basically saying was the case anyway, if, if it could have potentially averted this Russian demand? Well, I don't know. Maybe they weren't so averse to a conflict breaking out at all because there's some profit, profit motive there. Maybe because there's a longstanding kind of hell-bent desire, especially amongst the liberal aspects of the national security establishment in the U.S., but also the neocons and conservatives, to foster regime change in Russia. But this is really getting into the nub of it now. So you actually believe that the U.S. wanted this war. Is that fair? Well, I don't know how... I, I, I wouldn't put it as simply as that. But I think all the policy choices made in the run-up to the war and the policy choices being made ever since indicate that the desire on the part of the Biden administration and on the part of congressional Republicans, also on the part of the UK government, is to see the war extend indefinitely. Um, There was was a bilateral meeting earlier this week between the Secretary of State Blinken, the uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, and their counterparts in the Indian government. And when the subject of Ukraine came up, the Indian government representatives were consistent in their reiteration that their goal, meaning the goal of the Indian government, is to achieve a cessation of hostilities in Ukraine. The U.S. government representatives don't even pretend to have that as their goal any longer. Now, why is that? Why is that th- that any attempt at a potential ceasefire was essentially undermined by the U.S. government? There was, a, I don't know if you recall, but a couple of weeks ago, there was a glimmer of hope that potentially these negotiations between Ukraine and Russia could possibly lead to a cessation of hostilities. Um, because Russia had agreed to, you know, change its military strategy where they were going to be withdrawing from areas around uh, Kiev, right? What did the Secretary of State and the, what did the Pentagon and the State Department do in concert? Is they threw cold water on it immediately. They said, look, don't take this seriously. You know, we're not going to even entertain the possibility of any kind of ceasefire. Negotiations. So that, but that's now into once it's already started, what kind of conclusion would be a good one? But to be clear, then a lot of people would say, "What is Joe Biden's priorities? He's got a China that he wants to think about. There's inflation. There's economic problems. It's quite a, a long. It's a, it's a bit of a stretch to think that 
he really wanted all of his attention to be taken up in a protracted war, proxy war with Russia in Ukraine for the first half of his term. I mean, is that what you think, that this was actually a kind of a plan, something that the U.S. No. actually wanted to happen? It seems far-fetched. I wouldn't say it was a plan, or you know, because that's a weighty claim that would need evidence to support it. Conveniently, I don't need... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To mind read Joe Biden. I'm not sure there's a whole lot of mind there to read in the first place at this point. Um, so I could just look at what the policy of the government is and draw basic inferences from that. It doesn't require kind of speculation about some sort of secret plan hidden in a corridor within the CIA or something. Um, look, everything from a diplomatic standpoint, from a policy standpoint, and now from the standpoint of the provision of military armaments, indicates that the U.S. views it as within its interest to extend the war. And so, you know, what, what, what are we to extrapolate from that? Because India has the opposite view. China has the opposite view. There are other powerful governments who don't share this outlook that the U.S. repeatedly espouses. I think you're right to say that there are differences of opinion about what a kind of good conclusion would be. And what, you're, what you call extending the war, escalating the war, is people thinking someone should win and someone should lose, or there should be some sense of victory. Well, I suppose, from what you're saying, you would prefer a cessation of hostilities at pretty much any cost, even if that means giving a lot of ground to Putin, and him essentially gaining net from this operation. I mean, that's the, the core of the discussion, isn't it? People think you shouldn't, you shouldn't win by invading a country, and that's a really important lesson to learn. Well, first, on the, on the point of whether before it happened, there might have been a desire for it to happen by Biden or whomever. I can't claim that. However, I do think that there are plenty of incentives that politicians have to engender this kind of rallying around the flag effect. I mean, even now, Biden is and his advisors are undertaking this whole political attack where they're saying that inflation is actually the fault of Putin. So they are using it to their 
at least perceived political advantage. effective. Biden's opinion poll. Maybe it's not effective, but that's what they're attempting to do. I mean, in, in the UK, Boris Johnson was facing this clamor for him potentially to even resign, right, over the parties and such, you know, because the Conservative Party is apparently... The, 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 they're the a real stretch to think that Boris Johnson created the war in Ukraine. Oh, I'm not saying he created it. I'm not saying he created it, but I'm saying that once the focus decisively shifted from his potential political liabilities, where you had backbench Tory MPs standing up in Parliament saying, you know, have you no shame or something to that effect, you know, resign because of this party scandal, um, then that was within his political interest to now be, revive himself as this wartime leader. So there's a political logic there. I'm not saying it's effective in every instance, but this the idea that sort of it's un, you know unthinkable or wholly far-fetched for, you know, Biden or Johnson or whomever else to think that it could redound to their advantage to in, be in this wartime posture. I think, you know, it doesn't really hold up. Politicians are opportunistic and they're going to try and benefit Agreed. from any scenario. I think most people would agree with that. But once we're in this situation with Russia having full-scale invaded the country, the question is what is a good outcome? And what you call escalating or continuing the war is basically those Western powers that believe he must not be allowed to succeed out of this operation. Right? That's the, the discussion. Whilst you call it warmongering on their part, they would call your suggestion surrender, essentially. You're basically, if it's peace at any cost, take the Donbass, take the eastern regions, get whatever promises you need about NATO, Vladimir Putin, we'll give you everything, just anything to stop the war. That is that pretty much the, the Michael Tracy view. Well, again, I'm disinclined to suggest anything in the form of you know, submitting a policy paper. I could have worked for one of these dopey arms manufacturer funds. Well, you're in the conversation. You're in that. the conversation. Well, I guess, you know, I tweet. I'm not, you know. You tweet to 250,000 people <laughs> yeah. 20 times a day. <laughs> Roughly. Maybe I should ratchet that down. Dial that down, that so, uh, credulity. What is the alternative? The alternative is to say, okay, let Ukraine lose. Do a deal on pretty much any terms that Vladimir Putin wants, because that way we can call ourselves peace people. We are not warmongers anymore because we are choosing peace. And I think the people who disagree with you would say, you know, that's warmongery of a longer term, because if you give concessions to people like Vladimir Putin, you're just going to get more war further down the line. So maybe this isn't such a wise plan to say, okay, let's, let's just deal with him at any cost, because you're going to get more war further down the line. Well, I mean, that's a reincarnation of the domino theory, in a sense. And the domino theory was, you know, during its heyday, this idea that, you know, if we didn't stop communism, you know, the U.S. in Vietnam, the dominoes would fall and it would take over countries all around the South, Southeast Asia and potentially even make its way perilously to the U.S. borders at some point. And, you know, there's a very similar logic embedded in there. I mean, you even had Tom Cotton, this Republican senator from Arkansas, last month warning that if we don't do essentially what you just outlined, meaning stop Putin in his tracks in Ukraine, eventually he could invade the continental United States. And he actually said this, that, you know, if we're not, if he was accusing Biden of not being aggressive enough in his willingness to stop Putin. And he said, you know, look, if this appeasement policy continues, then... This, an air base in Washington state somehow could be soon flying a Russian flag. That's what Tom Cotton warned. So there's a domino theory type logic embedded in these uh, warnings that I think, you know, needs to be scrutinized. Um, again, I'm not a diplomat, so I'm not going to offer any proactive prescriptions. I will say when I look at the rhetoric of the diplomats representing China and India, which have now been denounced furiously for not condemning Putin as um, bombastically or melodramatically as the U.S. and other Western governments would like, it seems to me that they're constantly emphasizing the need to foster dialogue. And if that's a peace, wimpy peacenik position, okay, but the only way that wars ever end is to <laughs> conduct diplomacy. Um, and, and what's the alternative to diplomacy at this point? Well, it's a limitless proxy war that escalates literally every day. Every couple of days, Joe Biden announces another tranche 
of like $800 million in higher and higher grade weaponry. Um, every, every, every day he's debuting a new rhetorical attack against Putin where he, you know, he calls, uh, Putin, he accuses Putin of committing genocide. Actually, Donald Trump himself said that last night. So Biden and Trump are now singing Kumbaya. They're, you know, singing from the same hymn sheet. Um, and, you know, what, what's, what is all that leading up to? And why is it that somebody who, at least in principle, prefers diplomacy and de-escalation is now regarded as, uh, you know, a fifth column or something? You could say that that strategy that you just talked about of escalation and feeding military into the Ukraine army and so on has been spectacularly successful so far. Beyond anyone's wildest dreams, you could say, because everyone expected Russia to just sweep in and take the whole country within days. Didn't happen. They've now retreated from uh, around Kiev. Clearly, they're suffering losses, exactly what the level of them we don't know, but clearly they're suffering losses much more than anyone expected. And actually, this strategy seems to be really denting their military capability in much more than we could have foreseen. So maybe the, the strategy you're describing is really working. Well, I mean, that's you did a wonderful job articulating the predominant narrative in the U.S. and U.K. to justify the continued flow of armaments into Ukraine at the great enrichment of the weapons manufacturers. So I, I applaud you for that. You know, maybe there's an element of truth to it, but at the same time, and I'm you know writing a piece actually on this now, I listened to Tobias Elwood, who's a Conservative Party MP, chairman of the the Defense Select Committee, uh, a few days ago, speaking to a group at a think tank, proposing this notion that what the UK ought to be advocating for, and it should be on the vanguard is how he put it, meaning if the US is dithering, the UK must do it ourselves, you know, this is how we put it, and then the US will eventually follow along. He was proposing a NATO, UK-led NATO intervention in the sea, so a naval intervention, to, to, in Odessa, to prevent the Russian advance to potentially seize that city. So if everything is working out so spectacularly, why are they fiendishly trying to envisage new and new methods of escalation? There's a reason Tobias Elwood is not in the cabinet, not in the government. He is a Tory backbencher who is... Well, he's the head. Of, he's the head of an influential select committee. He's, right? But he's trying to get, um, you know, attention for his committee. Attention. This is the equivalent of finding a someone in the House of Representatives who has wacky things to say. It's not the position of the government. Well, I mean, if the if the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, who was, you know, let's say a Democrat, was making bizarre proposals about military strategy and demanding that the Democratic president accept this proposal, You'd report I, would, I would report it. So what is the Michael Tracy red line then? <laughs> because I'm... I'm in- my red line is people being annoying on Twitter. Let me ask the question. That's my red line. Because I'm intrigued at what point you would flip. Is there anything that you think justifies war? In the US, the warping effect that this, what's sometimes euphemistically called the defense industrial sector has on politics is profound. I actually think it's often undersold. I'm not one of these people who just overconfidently ascribes every utterance of a politician to the donations they receive. I think that can be maybe a bit excessive in its simplicity. However, this is one of the most lucrative industries in the country, and it is thoroughly integrated with the actual state. Um, so when you go to these industry conferences, as I sometimes do, one of the almost cliched slogans that they'll trumpet is that there really ought to be no barrier whatsoever between the public sector, meaning the Pentagon, and the private sector, meaning behemoth weapons manufacturers like Lockheed Martin or Raytheon or General Dynamics and so forth. They, as a matter of their ethos, they think that these should be commingled. And they set the agenda in D.C. to a huge extent. So my role journalistically, I think, and also reading really, really as a citizen, is to say, let's take a look at what they're advocating for. 
let's take a look at what they believe is in their profit interests. Let's take a look at who they're funding and to what end. Let's end by talking about Volodymyr Zelensky, because here is a guy who has almost unanimous approval in the West. I would agree with that. Um, He's treated like a hero. And you seem to have a different view. What is your view of him? How should we think of him? This is not some deeply characterological view that I'm probing his psyche to come up with. All I know is what I've seen and what you've seen in the public domain. And what I've seen is that since the war was launched, he, meaning Zelensky, and his subordinates in the Ukraine government have been vociferous in waging a lobbying campaign to implore the U.S. government in particular, but also other governments, including the U.K., to intensify its military commitment to Ukraine. I don't know. I don't think that's a controversial summary of what they've been up to, although a lot of people seem to get angry when you put it in those terms because it seems, I don't know, insufficiently adulatory of what he's doing. So, for example, last month, Zelensky appears before Congress in the U.S. via one of his many Zoom speeches. And... um, he cleverly invokes a wide range of kind of mythologies with the, that reside within the U.S. kind of sense of itself as a nation, right? So he talks about, he invokes Martin Luther King Jr. He said something to the effect of, you know, I have a dream that one day more Javelin missiles will be able to aim at Russia. I don't know, I forget exactly. Probably not a quote. No, not a direct quote. He brought up Pearl Harbor, 9-11. So some of the most emotionally searing events in U.S. history, and he made sure to spread it across the political spectrum. So everybody who reveres Martin Luther King, everybody who is never forgetting 9-11, everybody who has a grandfather who fought in World War II, they're all brought into his latest exhortation on behalf of Ukraine. And what was it all in service of? Well, it was clear. He played a video montage where graphic images from Ukraine were splashed on the screen and of, you know, harrowing images, I don't deny. But at the end, there was a card saying, close the sky over Ukraine. Now, that's a euphemism on top of a a euphemism. No-fly zone is itself a euphemism because it kind of has this connotation of a benign little um, intervention that anybody could undertake and then the, the sky would magically be closed and there would be no more bombs dropping on innocent Ukrainians when really it's just a it would be a declaration of war between the U.S., which would be leading the military force implementing this, and Russia. And then, you know, that astronomically raises the risk of nuclear annihilation, sorry to say. Um, but then he, the, the, he and his compadres have also now debuted, since the war began anyway, this concept of closing the sky, which is like a double euphemism. Sounds even more benign. And so... That, even if you listen to what Joe Biden himself has said, if Zelensky's demand were acceded to, it would instigate World War III. That's what Joe Biden says. Sounds like he's not going to do it then. Well, may, may, he may well not. He's escalating in other ways. Even the most ardent hawks in the uh, Senate, like Marco Rubio, from the outset have said, look, a no-fly zone would be World War III. And so when I see this universally adulated foreign leader on a nonstop lobbying campaign to demand the imposition of a policy that pretty much everyone seems to agree would instigate World War III, I don't necessarily think that I'm required to just mouth platitudes affirming his courage and heroism. I think actually the enormity of what he's advocating ought to be stressed. Um, so, you know, it, we're talking about, I mean, we've almost now been inured to the scale of the cataclysm that World War III would really be. I mean, it used to be the case that a politician would be reticent to even talk about it as an abstract concept. Right now, Joe Biden has to go around saying, look, you know, we'll do this, but we'll do not quite go there because that could be World War III. So it's like a living issue now, in part because of the advocacy of Zelensky. Even just this past Sunday, 60 Minutes, top news magazine program in the U.S., devoted, I think, its whole show 
to one of these really cool, you know, bunker interviews with Zelensky that he's now apparently able to do because uh, Kiev is more open to journalists trafficking in. And um, he re- he reiterated the same demand. So I, am I supposed to be like flushed with joy when I hear that, or should I should the mind be more focused on the reality of what it is that he's demanding be done? And even if we even if his the, the, his maximalist demand is not acceded to, which apparently it's not going to be, or at least you know Biden has disclaimed that. They're doing pretty much everything short of that. I mean, Zelensky had a phone call with Biden. And initially, Biden has said, look, you know, we're going to do this next tranche of weapons, 800 million, a lot of money. And, you know, that, that'll be followed up maybe in five days with another tranche. And he wasn't going to send this uh, select selection of helicopters. And Zelensky ha- was on the phone with Biden and lobbied him to send those helicopters. So th- this, this person is having, if, if, you're, if you're not inclined to favor constant escalation, if you don't want necessarily to be waging a limitless proxy war against a nuclear-armed power. If you're maybe a bit dubious about where this is all is heading, then the person who has orchestrated it from the standpoint of foreign lobbying is ultimately Zelensky, and for him to just be idolized as this kind of international folk hero where nobody's even allowed to question a thing he says except to maybe hope that on occasion he'll wear a different kind of shirt... Hmm. So it's, it's ridiculous. Would you concede? And he's an emotional yeah. manipulator. He, right. he appeared at the UK Parliament. You probably saw this. And does this echo of the Churchillian, you know, we will fight them on... He's a politician. The, well, right. So why am I required to adulate this politician so who's demanding something insane? If you're not moved by this, the, the sense that this guy is coming from an unlikely background, he's staying put, he's not fleeing, which is so often what we see when countries are invaded these days, and he is rallying his people. If, if you set all of that aside, the kind of mushy 60 minutes stuff, and you want to have a cold realist attitude, would you at least concede that he's extremely effective at achieving the ends that he thinks are best for his country, which is right now, instead of having been defeated by Russia, they are quite effectively keeping them back. Yes, it relies on influxes of arms from Western countries, so he thinks he needs to do these PR efforts. He needs to make these moving speeches. It's working pretty well for Ukraine, and therefore, at the very least, he's an effective leader. Would you grant that? To what end is he leading toward? I mean, prior to the war, after assuming office in 2019, right, that was it. What does Zelensky do? Well, he campaigned for office initially as a kind of a peace candidate, right, where he was going to end the conflict in the Donbass. He was going to placate the more kind of right-wing factional types in Ukraine who were against the brokering of any kind of negotiated resolution. And, you know, he was going to basically embark on a new path forward to Ukraine where it could get beyond the turmoil that started in 2014 vis-a-vis Russian military action. He didn't achieve that goal. I mean, I think in terms of mitigating death and destruction, were he to have followed through on, you know, the broad thrust of his pledges in 2019, that would have been probably superior. And in fact, he went further than ever in bringing... Ukraine into the orbit of NATO. While it hadn't formally joined NATO, it was elevated in 2020 to this enhanced partner status within the infrastructure of NATO, which is sort of a precursor to formal entry. He hosted all kinds of U.S. and NATO military exercises in Ukraine. Um, He pronounced his desire to join NATO on multiple occasions and then seems to have backtracked on it potentially as a negotiating tactic, although who knows. So, you know, prior to the invasion, you know, there could have been potentially things within his power. I'm not an expert on Ukrainian internal politics to, you know, avert a war of this kind, and he didn't do that. I mean, if he he did do it, then, you know, and, and we weren't in a situation now that could very conceivably escalate into a World War III type scenario, I'd be the first singing his praises, but I don't see much evidence that he's done much of anything to actually mitigate conflict. So you're impressed with any aspect of his 
career so far. I'm impressed any, with the savvy. Any good things to say about I'm him? impressed with the savvy of his PR operation. I think it makes total sense that he made his reputation as a TV producer because he knows how to tug at the heartstrings. He knows the right um, historical cliches to invoke, depending on the parliament he's addressing. I even watched him talk to the legislature of Australia, and they were in the throes of an emotional stupor listening to him. So he's got to be an effective communicator if he's able to you know, rile the passions of so many disparate countries around the world. I mean, for God's sake, Ireland is on the verge of potentially renouncing its policy of foreign policy neutrality, or military neutrality anyway, that it's had since basically the formation of the country, which, and which it retained through World, War, that, World right? War II. Right. I mean, Sweden, Sweden and Finland now saying they're going to join NATO. So if he has a role in encouraging any of these developments, you have to acknowledge that he's highly effective. I don't think necessarily the efficacy is toward a desirable end, but just in terms of his prowess as an operator, I mean, you got to hand it to him. Michael, we got to leave it there, but thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. That was Michael Tracy, a professional member of the Awkward Squad on Twitter and social media. You can find him on Substack and sign up to hear his thoughts. He gets accused of being a Kremlin apologist, a, a Putin propagandist, for his relentless focus on Western missteps, Western hypocrisy. I tried to probe what he really thought, and I found he was quite reluctant to give detailed policy answers, but gave the impression that he thinks his job is to ask difficult questions. You don't have to agree with them, you don't have to agree with all or any of his opinions to still be happy that skeptical voices are still allowed to exist, and for now, we are still allowed to broadcast them. Thank you to him for coming in, and thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.